Welcome to the 239th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. I remember well the days when bugs plastered all over my windshield was a common occurrence while driving through farm country. When's the last time any of us have experienced that? It turns out we are in the middle of what entomologists call an insect apocalypse, and it's not just honeybees that are disappearing. All over the world, we're losing insects of all types at unprecedented levels. That's not good news. Some insects can be major pests, but the majority are beneficial. Besides providing pollinator services, insects play critical roles in the workings of the ecosystem, doing everything from forging links and food chains to helping with decomposition and recycling. For example, according to the science writer Brooke Jarvis, dung beetles save U.S. ranchers $380 million annually by helping break down manure. As entomologist Jonathan Lundgren says, For every species of pest, there are 1,700 species of insects we can't live without. It's become clear that chemical-intensive monocultural agriculture is playing a major role in the decimation of insects. The lack of habitat and foraging areas, coupled with insecticides that indiscriminately kill the good bugs along with the bad, is having a devastating impact. But Lundgren, who was a scientist with the USDA's Agricultural Research Service for 11 years and has an extensive background in researching ecologically-based pest and farm management systems, says the loss of insects is not a farming problem per se, Rather, it's how that farming is carried out. Relying on industrialized systems that leave no room for biodiversity is a disaster, not only for bugs, but for humans, he argues. Lundgren has the proof to back up this view. In 2016, he started Blue Dasher Farm in eastern South Dakota as a place where he and his team can study regenerative farming practices that promote biodiversity while boosting farmers' bottom lines. The working farm raises livestock and crops as well as keeps bees. Through Blue Dasher and the Ectisis Foundation, Lundgren and his team are looking at ways biodiversity-based farming systems can be scaled up and adapted on a wide-scale basis. One Blue Dasher project found that farms raising corn without insecticides and using regenerative methods such as multi-species cover cropping, no-till, and integration of livestock via grazing were nearly twice as profitable as their conventional counterparts. These regenerative farms had more insects and more soil organic matter, clear indicators of a healthy ecosystem as well as a healthy bottom line. Lundgren says it all starts with healthy soil, which is home to its fair share of creepy crawly critters that can help agriculture build ecological and economic resilience. The entomologist recently spoke at a series of Land Stewardship Project soil health workshops in southeastern Minnesota. This podcast features an excerpt of one of his presentations. Lundgren started out talking about how agricultural systems based on biodiversity can not only benefit insects, but farmers as well. I'm an entomologist, but uh, also thinking about where insects fit, and I tend to approach entomology from a different standpoint, um, where we're looking at, at promoting insects, and I'll tell you why. Right, I'm also a farmer, I'm also a beekeeper. So four years, four summers ago, uh, we started a regenerative farm in eastern South Dakota because I think we need to change how agricultural science is conducted. Uh, scientists need to have firsthand experience with farming systems that, that increases the relevance of the kinds of questions that we're asking. So on our own operation, honey is the big uh, money maker, uh, and then we have uh, sheep production, hair sheep for uh, meat production and, and uh, vegetation management. We have a layer operation for local pastured eggs, pastured broilers, and then uh, an orchard is in there. It, it's a pretty diversified system, some annual crop production as well. 
yes, uh, I'm not just going to be talking and, and preaching at you as far as how you should be managing your farm. I've been there, uh, made a lot of mistakes myself. So, um, so beginning of January, uh, I was asked to speak before the, the National Beekeepers Meeting. They had been keynoting down there near near Chicago. I kind of I asked them, you know, how long have your bees been dying? Uh, they're like, oh, 2006, 2008. You know, that kind of, that's kind of when the bees really started to crash nationally. And I said, well, um, okay, well, how many, how, how much money have you spent on um, research to save the bees? And they're like, oh, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. And I'm like, okay, how, how, how'd your bees do last year? And the room got real quiet because this isn't a bee problem, but we're treating it as though it is. This is much bigger than a bee problem. And every state in the country ended up hiring on another bee scientist to solve the bee problem, right? Like, how's that working? It's not. Because, yeah, we've learned a heck of a lot more about, you know, honeybees and their biology and stuff like that, but it's not solving the problem. It's the same situation in agricultural science in general, right? I mean, we spend hundreds of millions a year on fixing all of the issues that you guys are confronting in agriculture and crop production and beef production. Margins get thinner every year, right? People are making less and less money, at least the farmers are. It's broken. This isn't a bee problem. This is a biodiversity problem. We're not just losing bees, we're losing entire habitats, right? We're draining the wetlands, we're putting it into the Mississippi and sending it down into the Gulf. Where'd the prairie go? Entire insect communities are dying right now. Uh, it's called the insect apocalypse. We've lost 60% of insect biomass in the last 27 years. The windshield test, uh, when you guys were growing up, how often did you have to clean the windshield when you're driving around the county? And how often do you have to do it now? We're losing birds, we're losing bats, we're losing bees, we're losing butterflies at a rate of extinction that the planet has never experienced before. This is the worst mass extinction event that Earth has ever experienced. Worse than the dinosaurs. What's the problem? It isn't soybeans. It's how we're producing soybeans. Our farms have become an asteroid hitting planet Earth. But it's also the solution. It's also the solution. Agriculture, food production is not the problem. It's how we're producing it. Agriculture has become far too simplified. What does that mean? What that means is we've eliminated life from our farms. <coughs> Biodiversity. Life is microbes, fungi, uh, worms, nematodes, insects, plants, birds, critters, right? That is biodiversity. Biodiversity is good not because we love species, right? Biodiversity in life is good because it does things. It drives the productivity of your farm. And when you eliminate the life from your farm, you have to replace it with a jug. And the more jugs you use, the more jugs you need. It doesn't matter what's on the side of the jug. It can say nitrogen, it can say herbicide, it can say uh, insecticide, fungicide, whatever, right? It's all jugs, and it's all meant to replace the life on your farm and what it did for you for free. It's an addiction. And who wins in an addiction scenario? It's not the addict, it's the people pushing the drugs. There's a lot of money being made on farming right now. A lot of money is being made on farming right now, but it's not by the farmers. Let's put the money back where it belongs. The vast majority of life on your farm is stuff you can't see. 
It lives in the soil. All different kinds, bacteria, protozoa that are eating the bacteria, nematodes that are eating the protozoa and the bacteria, mites that are eating all of this stuff. Springtails, little columbola that have a furcula on their butts, they actually use that thing to launch themselves off, and you'll see this happening. It's a lot of fun. I kind of wish I had that every once in a while. When the boss walks in, you know, you can boing, where'd he go? Uh, insects. We got a lot. This is what I really like. These are, this is the, now we're getting into biodiversity that you can actually see. The critters up here. All the way up to vertebrates, things with backbones. In one square meter of soil, the amount of life is really staggering that's in your soil. Um, I did one estimate uh, out on Dakota Lakes Research Farm, Dwayne Beck's place. He had a billion just predatory insects per acre in the soil. Um, but we are doing these bio-inventories, right? Bio-inventories is counting the number of species that live on a farm. Remarkably, for as much work as we have spent on researching farmland and different crops and different livestock systems, we know very little about the life that lives there. So we are trying to remedy that, okay? We are conducting these bio-inventories all over the country. It's not something that's sexy that you get a grant for, right? This is stuff, but yet it's fundamental science that we need. How do we know how our, how our management practices or how our planetary change is affecting life if we don't even know what's living there? So we've done these inventories. There's 482 species that live in corn. This is just insects that we counted in eastern South Dakota. Wheat, 103 species of predators, only predatory insects. 126 species of predators. In cow poop, in cow crap, in eastern South Dakota, we have identified 172 species of insects that live there. That's more than what we're finding in soybean fields, for crying out loud. How do you understand all of that life? How, and the implications that that life has for the, uh, the productivity of your farm. It becomes very complicated very quickly. And so we turned to the, the social literature in order to try to understand um, this stuff. Network theory, this is how you know, search engines figure out you know, what advertisement to, to throw up on your web pages when you're searching around. Who's connected to who? Who, who would you be your good friend under certain circumstances, right? And so we turn to the statistical underpinnings of social sociology in order to try to understand how bio biological networks work. Much of our biological networks, uh, one network that you guys might be really familiar with is food webs, right? You learn about these in school. You know, how, you know, one, is, uh, one, one organism meets another organism meets another organism. And those connections then form a network. It forms a web, right? Okay, so much of our understanding of these networks comes from very simplified systems. Within science, we take a black plastic pot, we throw a corn plant in there, we put an herbivore on there, maybe it's the European corn borer, or the corn rootworm, and then, or an aphid, and then we put like a lady beetle in there, and we got it all caged up, and we say, oh, you know, when we do this, then we reduce the pest, or when the pest goes crazy, all this good stuff. But this ignores the, the complexity of the natural world. 53 cornfields, we did complete bio-inventories. We counted all of the insects that were living in these cornfields. We dissected plants in each of these fields and counted them up. It's a hairball, right? So when there was like numerical associations between these two species, we would draw a line. So as statistically across all of these fields, this is what ends up coming out of it. Take a step back. Now, number 80, number 80s are pests. 
So you're allowed to hate number 80. This is the bad guy, right? All of our efforts need to be focused on species number 80. We're gonna spend hundreds of dollars per acre in controlling that species and ignore everything else that's living in that cornfield. <laughs> but by doing that, you already lost. You already lost the game because species 80 was never the problem. Species 80 is generated, the abundance of this pest is generated by all of these interactions. Cornfields that have a lot of pests do not have species diversity. There's no life in them. That's important. This is community evenness. What this is, is it's a measure, it's an ecological measure of like how abundant everything is, okay? All of those species and all of these cornfields. So are they all of equal abundance or is there some of them that are going crazy and some of them that are just singletons, right? They're just a couple of loners out there. Even communities don't have pests. We're producing our pests through our management decisions. How do you encourage insect diversity on your fields? Plants. How else? How do you reduce diversity of insects in your field? Buy a jug. Doesn't matter what's on the side of the jug. It all does it. It can say organic. It can say, you know, whatever. It's a jug and it reduces diversity. So we are in control of this situation. The diversity and the abundance of every other group of organisms scales directly with how many plant species you have in a habitat. So now you understand why monocultures don't work. They don't work. Remember that hairball? I teased out the main components. This is a, the pest abundance, or this is, this is the diversity uh, and, and the interactions. This is a network that was present in a cornfield that has very low pest abundance. Look at all the connections that are going on in there, right? All of these species are interacting with each other. This is a cornfield that had the highest pest abundance. It's broken. There's no connections among the species anymore. There's even a pentagram. That's a sign of the devil, right? <laughs> so as the connections within that community strengthen, we see that those are, the, those are the cornfields that don't have pests. How does this matter, right? How do you use that information? I mean, that's really basic science, right? But it's telling us something really important. So Claire was one of my master's uh, students, um, and she kind of knitted together about a decade of research, maybe 15 years worth of corn entomology research that we were conducting into a single study. Uh, so what Claire did that was so wonderful is she said, okay, People are using this information about diversity on their farms, whether they know it or not, they're practicing regenerative farming. And so what she did is in Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota, and Nebraska, we found some of the top regenerative producers of corn. And we said, point us at the corn phase of your rotation. And we went out and we sampled those fields. And then we said, okay, show us your neighbor who's doing, who's a good conventional farmer that, that's been profitable and, and all of that stuff. They've been around for a long time. And so they did, and we've sampled those fields. So regenerative farms aren't linked necessarily by practices. They're, they're linked by principles. But there were, in this study, or one practice that was really, really telling about what was going on in these two systems. None of the regenerative cornfields used insecticides, sometimes for decades. All of the conventional cornfields used Bt corn, so it was genetically modified to resist insect pests, and it was all treated with neonicotinoid seed treatments. 
Then we went out and we did full bio inventories. We, we took the corn plants and we sliced them up and we looked inside of the corn plants for any insects. And then we got down on our hands and knees and we, and we, and we looked on any insects on the soil surface. And then we'd suck them up with these little aspirator devices that we were using. And then we'd take a soil core and we'd drill into the soil and we'd get a soil column. And we'd extract those things. We'd put them into a Berlazy. I'll show you those in a little bit. And then all of the insects that lived in the soil, we would quantify those too. And then we also looked at the yields, and we looked at the profits of each of these fields. The insecticide-treated cornfields had 10 times more pests. That wasn't supposed to happen, right? Because as an entomologist, I was trained, I'm an entomologist, pests are inevitable. You're going to have them. So what you have to do is you have to get down on your hands and knees, and you've got to wait. And you've got to watch your fields, right? And Because they're coming. And then the insects arrive. Oh, oh, don't fire away yet! Don't hold off. Because that's good entomology is you start counting the insects. You count them up, and then they hit a threshold, and then you act. You buy a jug, and you spray them out. And it's so satisfying to watch them die right in front of your eyes. And what these farmers said showed me is that by designing their systems appropriately, they don't have insect pests anymore. Insects are not, pests are not inevitable. They are an artifact of your decision. And until you take responsibility for that, you're going to keep buying jugs and you're going to keep a lot of big agrochemical companies in pretty good shape. They're going to love you. Yields were down by 29% in the regenerative uh, cornfields. Profits were twice as high. Why on earth do we give prizes to the farmer that can grow the highest yield in a county? A well-trained monkey can grow 300 bushel corn if they buy enough junk and put it out there. It's about the profits, isn't it? Why were these guys twice as profitable? Significantly reduced their seed costs. Significantly reduced their fertilizer costs. And they marketed their product. Some of them just sold it down to the coop, and that was fine. Very few of these were organic, by the way. They weren't getting a premium. They were getting a premium because they were working within their own communities in some ways. They were planting non-GMOs, which is GMOs has locked you guys into a pretty rotten situation. Uh, and getting off of that is pretty critical in order for us to move forward. We asked, or we looked at the data, and we said, this idea that high yields are what we're after. If we just get that next three bushels, we're good farmers, right? And we looked at that and we said, are yields correlated with profits in these cornfields? They weren't. You want to know what the profits were correlated with? Amount of soil organic matter these farmers had generated. The more soil organic matter they had generated on their farm, the more profitable they were. That's what we need to be giving prizes for. It's poop time. Dung as habitat. All right. Uh, how many of you guys are livestock producers? Oh, good. Perfect. Uh, 450 species of insects are identified in cattle dung. That was a really that was down in the southwestern U.S. Um, around the world, dung beetles steal the show oftentimes in this dialogue. When we think about dung insects, we think dung beetles, don't we? And that may be true or may be right and that may be wrong, but it is what it is. We've got about 1,500 species of dung beetles in North America. Many people have called me saying, I don't have dung beetles on my farm. And I said, well, you would be the one farm that I've ever seen that doesn't. They're there. They're not these big African beetles that are rolling around elephant turds, right? They're little itty-bitty things that are recycling your pads. Out of these insects, this incredible diversity that's associated just with cattle dung, 
1.7% of them are pests. Why is dung removal so important? Okay, uh, pasture fouling. When there's a turd down there, the, it, there's no grass, right? I mean, there's grass around it, but not in the patch itself. When uh, cattle were first introduced into uh, Australia and New Zealand, uh, they, they, th there was nothing to break down the turds. I mean, all of the local dung uh, insect community was adapted to large marsupials who poop in pellets. And so these large cowpats just sat there and languished, right? And what ended up happening is that the pastures were rendered absolutely useless. I mean, they just cramped them up too much. And then suddenly all these flies started to make a living on these pats, okay? And so you couldn't walk around. There was flies everywhere on these islands where they had introduced cattle until they introduced dung beetles in order to start in, or breaking these things down. So a lot of these pests are associated with the pats as well. Many of our parasites are associated with the pats. The faster you break those down, the less parasites you have. So dung beetles alone are valued, and we're actually generating, this, this number was generated back in the 1980s. We are currently doing the work on this to value dung beetles in North and South Dakota in, uh, uh, on, on regenerative and conventional ranches right now. So we can see how much of an impact, economic impact, that regenerative cattle management has on your bottom line. So we wanted to see what the insects were doing on these things. So we, uh, this was work that was done by Jacob Pachenka. He's a former master student. He's now getting his doctorate down at uh, Purdue. Um, so we caged up a bunch of turds, okay? So we put these insect-proof cages around them. And then we checked them regularly, and then we would pick up these turds, and then we would weigh them to see how much they had broken down over time. For this part of the study, this is just the first experiment, he identified 87,000 insects to species level. Out of all of these species, there's more than, a, like 109 species of insects were identified from just eastern South Dakota, right? Only 13 of them were dung beetles. What we learned about this, because we collected those pats over time, and we looked at how the insects were affecting the pats over time, over the life of the, uh, of the turd, what we found first off is that there's a lot of critters in each of these and that the communities change as the pat ages. What we've discovered is that if the insect community can access that pat within the first day to seven days, no longer than seven days, it breaks down. If you don't have insects that rapidly colonize that poop within the first couple of days of it splatting on the ground, you're going to have that turd there for a long time. And so it's really important our management practices have to reflect that. So if there's if, if environmental conditions, if you're using avermectins or any insecticide on your animals, most of that comes out in the poop, right? And that stops this process. That means all of your pests, all of your pathogens recycle in that rangeland. The fastest that I've seen a pat be destroyed was down in Alabama. In one day, it was gone. You have to get them out of your fields, out of your pastures within seven days. Otherwise, you get pest recycling. That's your target goal, seven days. So what we were really interested in is where dung beetles kind of fit in this whole dialogue, right? How important are dung beetles? Because that's the one we always get all the press. They were only about 3% of that community in terms of abundance. So it was just a finest sliver of that community. But what were they doing? Fundamentally, this is what ecologists would call a keystone species, that they have an 
uh, on, uh, that they have a tremendous impact on the life in your in a habitat that's uncorrelated with their abundance or whatever. So, so you can have very few of them, but still have a huge impact. Why is that? Because as soon as that hat hits the ground, it forms a skin. And the only insects around that are big enough to punch through that are the dung beetles. They open up highway systems through your turds that allow all of the other insects to go in and colonize and break it down. What causes pests? We learned this in corn. Lack of diversity. Too much disturbance. What are disturbances? Tillage is a disturbance. Yep, chemicals, uh, any jug. Doesn't matter what it says. It's all a disturbance. So what am I talking about with regenerative ranch or animal production? Uh, so regenerative animal production or uh, management is high intensity. So lots of animal units out there. Move them frequently. So flash it, move them on, and then allow it to rest. Okay? And then stop using parasiticides. Um, so we uh, surveyed 16 ranches in eastern South Dakota that ranged from regenerative down to conventional. And then we looked at what was going on on those ranches. So we took these cores and then we did bio-inventories. Uh, in this study, uh, we get the whole lab crew going on this, okay? Uh, 116,000 insects were identified. There were um, uh, 400 uh, insects per pack and we got 172 different species from these different ranches. That's just in the turns. Regenerative ranches had significantly higher <laughs> amount of species and diversity. Two different metrics of how those communities are responding. What drives pests? A lack of diversity. All right, this is critical. The more avermectin that they were using in these pats, or the more that we detected in each of these pats, the fewer predators that we were finding in there. That's where your pests come from. You're making your pest problems by using avermectin. They're an addiction. Pests aren't the problem. If you have pests on your field or your pasture or your animal, find the problem. Stop slapping band-aids on. Change the way you're managing things. Dr. Jonathan Lundgren's Blue Dasher Farm is at bluedasher.farm. For more on the Land Stewardship Project's work to help farmers build healthy soil profitably, see the Soil Builders page at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.